0: Welcome back to New Books in Military History. This is your host, Bob Wintermute. Now, as a rule, the overwhelming majority of our guests at New Books in Military History are the authors of books and monographs that deal exclusively with historical topics. Our guest today is a departure from this norm, in that he is most interested in the interpretation and presentation of historical artifacts archives, and sites for the general public and scholarly expert. Mark Blackburn is employed with the National Park Service, where he is a regular participant in crafting public history interpretations and exhibits at several of the nation's most scenic and historical sites, including the Seattle Unit of the Klondike Gold Rush National Historical Park, the Nez Perce National Historical Park, and also at Mount Rainier National Park. We're going to be talking about public history and historic interpretation as he presents in his book, Interpreting American Military History at Museums and Historic Sites. Now, as a general disclaimer, while we never worked together, both Mark and I did study together under Russell Wigley at Temple University, albeit at different times. So in a very real way, we do share an academic lineage that said uh greetings mark
1: good morning and and thank you for uh allowing me this unique opportunity today and uh well uh as an employee of the department of interior and national park service the ideas represented in this interview uh are not those of the department of interior or national park service these ideas are of my own
0: oh it's, it's my it's my pleasure believe me it's my pleasure Yeah, I'd like to point out at the very start, while much of this book presents a, a general narrative of American military history from the colonial period to the present day, what we're really going to be focusing on and what the real purpose of the book appears to be is its own focus on the importance of public history as an often overlooked aspect of the craft. Why did you feel it was so important to share this outlook at the start?
1: Well, that's a great question and a great way to start the interview. And um, I've, I've thought about this for, for years now. And, you know, it's only with hindsight can I truly understand uh, that the choices I've made in my own career were, 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 were perhaps the right ones. Um, I've had a lifelong interest in military history, and I've been blessed with many opportunities to follow, to follow that dream. And when I left uh, Temple University, uh, things were changing in the academic job market. I started in January of 1986 and left at the beginning of the 90s. And as probably most listeners of this podcast know, in particular for military history, the career field was changing. Um, And I was so focused on my studies and with Dr. Weigley's own emphasis on on making us succeed in our studies, I never really thought of uh, anything but an academic career. But in the summer of 1987, while I was looking for a summer job, I had the unique opportunity to work as a as a interpretive park ranger at Independence National Historical Park, which is in Philadelphia. You know, the home of the Liberty Bell, Independence Hall, and so on. And that first that that happened to be the same summer of the the bicentennial of the adoption of the Constitution by the Constitutional Convention, and those three months opened my eyes to, to the National Park Service. Not only was it a great group of people, but uh, the ability to share your passions kind of got under my skin, and at the end of the season, uh, I, I had to pause and think about what I wanted to do with the rest of my life, and for a brief moment, I I seriously thought of leaving graduate school and, and pursuing a career with the Park Service, but <laughs> I took pause in that thought and realized that I'd probably be better off completing my graduate education. But I enjoyed the work, so I continued as a summer seasonal for, for almost every summer I was in graduate school until I had to really buckle down and do my dissertation. So uh, once I matriculated in an academic career, uh, in particular in American military history or teaching American history generally, it, it just didn't work out. I, I stepped back and, and one thing led to another and I was picked up as a park ranger at um, uh, Klondike Gold Rush National Historical Park in Seattle. Right. And, that, and that was 23 years ago. And since that time, I've had uh, a, a long time time to reflect and think on the choices uh when i left graduate several years after leaving graduate school uh dr weigley was still in contact with us and he had mentioned that he hadn't run across a group of students that had more difficulties finding jobs teaching than the groups of of students leaving in the 1990s Mm -hmm. but you know um i have no regrets over the choices i made because uh as uh I suppose a practitioner of public history, in my career I've had uh, opportunities to connect with people from all walks of life, from young children to elderly Americans to the huge diversity of our population and, and, and connect my passions, the meanings of the resources that we talk about to the interests of the visitor. And there's not many career fields, that give you an opportunity for all of those things to intersect into one profession mm-hmm. and while I, I i have no regrets over the the choices i've made I, I do wish i had more time to do original research which is very difficult to do i work 40 to 50 hours a week and then i don't have the financial support to do that but that being said um uh th- th- this The the field, the field of interpretation, and I'm speaking as a profession, just gives people who want to touch the public with the history of our country, and uh, let's just say American military history specifically, Mm -hmm. in a way that academics don't have the opportunity to. And uh, I've, I've only come to that really thinking about it for 20 years but i wouldn 't be sincere if, if I said that I came with that epiphany the moment i I, I joined the park service i didn 't i 'd taken years to come to that conclusion but it 's a unique field and one that uh, i 've enjoyed doing
0: that 's great that 's great I, I appreciate your candor mark i really do i mean it 's one of the things I enjoyed about you know starting your book you know you 're right up front with the life choices that defined the path that you took to become a public historian. And I find myself thinking, I wish that more historians who worked in the academic path or in the academic tradition of writing monographs were open about the choices and challenges they made because, it, you know, it, I, I find it's one of the natures of the monograph that we write that we share so little of ourselves and the challenges that we all face in entering the field. You know, so reading your own account, it really struck me as being, you know, quite informative and validating particularly as you chart at your path as a public historian. And I I find that even today, as I work with graduate students, I find myself trying to be more open with them about the need to consider public history as a career path. What are your thoughts about the future for academics in the tightening job market and, you know, the, the role of public history in helping them find validation?
1: well that's an interesting question and again one that I've thought about and as much as I enjoyed um, my graduate career and uh, I'm sure you'll agree with me working with Dr. Wigley was a joy Uh, understanding the the impressions that he made on me is something that I've only come to appreciate from hindsight but one thing that I've come to realize uh, in particular, of the career choices that I made, and I'm making a very gross generalization here, but I think that in uh, my experience in graduate school, and this this may be echoed of many people who are listening to this graduate or to this podcast, is that there was always an assumption that you were here not only for yourself but to expand your knowledge to prepare yourself for an academic career. And given the choices that um I have made and that I fell into, um, I I've I've come to develop some strong impressions and perhaps even opinions about this. Uh there was really no career planning. And and perhaps uh because it was you're in graduate school, you there's an expectation that you have a level of maturity and we don't need to hold your hand in the choices that you make. You're here to start a career and the ivory tower of academia, and um, that's what I wanted to do, and that's where I, I saw uh, my future, but in in hindsight, I've come to realize that uh, just as a, uh, a, a undergraduate degree in history can lead to critical thinking skills, I've thought that a graduate degree in history doubled up on critical thinking, and it gave me a perspective that It's not about that one moment in time and that event. It's given me a perspective that to understand our past, we have to put it in context with so many different things. So looking back over the choices I made and, and keep in mind uh, the choices I made, I almost just fell into by accident. Mm -hmm. Uh, It wasn't at times. I don't think it was a deliberate choice on my half. It by half, it just, it just (laughs) happened. But putting that aside I think that given the emphasis on preparing students for an academic career, in a, in a sense it puts uh, career blinders on people in a traditional history background and doesn't give them the opportunity to step back and think, um, I could go into public history, I could become an academic, I could blend both, um, I could become a consultant, I can go into government work. and. <clears throat> Again, that's that's that those those observations I've been thinking about for a long time. It's no fault of of Temple University or Dr. Wylie. It's just the the way the system prepares you for the assumption of a of an academic career. And frankly, putting aside all the angst of the the, the future of military history in the academic community, I, I, I think the benefit of the entire historical community. It would, it would be a, a benefit to focus in on uh, career development when a person enters a history program. This is what you need to do to succeed, but there's also other fields that you can think about beyond teaching. Let's talk about that. Uh, and I just uh, have, have I, I fell into a certain path that's given me that perspective. And this book is, has, I, I suppose, given me a, a way to share that and Perhaps be an evangelist for it.
0: <laughs> well, you're, you're preaching to a choir of many. Of the, of this <laughs> podcast. Yeah, you know, I want to talk about about the, this angst, the angst of the military historian a little bit. Um, it's an idea that military history, as an area, is generally misunderstood by the academy, um, and you know it's become so often stated, it's almost become a trope. I think in describing the field. You know, we, we could have a discussion for hours about that, but I appreciate the notion that the subject is no less misunderstood and misused by the general public as well. That is to say, the general public has a you know, predisposed notion of what military history is or should be and aren't prepared to step outside of that, that narrow framework. What do you think are the obligations and responsibilities? specialists in the field of military history, both in the academy and in the public sphere, to help address that? And how is public history in particular, you think, best suited for that role?
1: Wow. That's that's the $64,000 question. I I think um, I'll start from, if you will, 30,000 feet. And Mm -hmm. Even though uh, there's been articles over the state of American military history since the late '60s and '70s, with the revolution in in its social history, I, I think that there has been um, an ongoing struggle over over that identity, at least from my perception uh, in academia for for 30 or 40 years. I, I think that um, from my perspective it's unfortunate that those generalizations are still rampant in academia. And again, I'm not in academia, so this, I'm making the generalization here. But I think with the so-called new military history, the field itself has been evolving and is a lot more successful in, in bringing in uh, the other aspects beyond drums and trumpets. And when I look at my own library and read book reviews, and see that there's everything from environmental history to gender studies being intermixed with with military history. But from an, uh, an academic perspective, there's been huge leaps and bounds forward in, in blending and making military history relevant. Now, in the public sphere, and I'm, again, making huge generalizations, I think in many regards... Uh, It's stuck in in the past. When you you think of uh, public history in the broadest sense of the words and how the public is exposed to it, they're still stuck in drums and trumpets, and uh, it's the same stuff that people are exposed to day in and day out. Uh, Documentaries on the History Channel, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There's no uh, uh, realization that the field itself has moved on. So, for me, public history has an obligation to catch up with its academic partners and reveal to the public uh, the the full richness of what this field is. So, for example, when you, I, I recently looked on Amazon. I just typed in uh, American Military History, and it came in with 40,000 titles.
0: Yeah. And a lot of
1: those um, talk about uh, minutia, and that's great. I, I think for the curators, uh, understanding how many rivets are on an M3 Lee is great. But in the end, you have to ask the question, is it relevant? And I would say, no, it's not. And I think that for, for military history that's consumed by the public, we are irresponsible as practitioners if we don't tap in to the richness of what the new military history represents. And I think we have to go beyond, uh, the public perception of what military history is. It's more than, than, than going to a Civil War battlefield and seeing blue arrows and green arrows, blue arrows and gray arrows on a map. I think for the public to understand that it's uh, military history is another avenue to understand the greater meanings of what it is to experience American military history, Uh, we have to go far beyond that. For example, uh, the visitor center that opened at Gettysburg National Military Park uh, Mm -hmm. several years ago, Uh, it's a very big exhibit. It does go into the... um, the minutia of those three days in 1863. But the one theme that you see throughout the whole exhibit is this notion of a new birth of freedom. The moment you step into the visitor center, you see a film that that goes beyond the three days at Gettysburg and explores what this battle was about. It's a new birth of freedom. As you go through uh, the exhibit, it gets very dense at times, but it ends with the Gettysburg address and reminds visitors that this is indeed a new birth of freedom. So it would be my hope by weaving in traditional stories with more context or making it people stories. Uh, it can make uh, a, a, a field that is rife with generalizations into something that's more relevant to, to, um, to the public But uh, that has to be done one step at a time, and given how pervasive uh, generalizations are about military history, uh, it's a tough road to hoe, and we got a lot of work to do.
0: Right, right. Well, you know how you know the United States, in particular, is well served by its network of federal and state parks and memorials that are connected Ah. to military history. How does the American system compare, in your view? with the efforts in other countries and what are the relative American strengths and weaknesses in comparison with some of those other sites?
1: Well, unfortunately I've never really had the opportunity to um, think about an international perspective. So I'm just um, uh, uh, stating in very, very broad, broad strokes here, but um, the, The preservation effort in the United States, starting um, in in the late 19th century to the present time, has given us uh, an infrastructure at the the local, state, and federal level to set aside lands for preservation, and given the um, densely populated uh, countries of Europe and the different uh, processes and how to preserve their heritage, they've gone down a completely different path And I think only now, as I understand it, are beginning to catch up. So given uh, uh, many battlefields in Europe are still in private hands, Mm -hmm. it limits the the kind of preservation efforts that are done at a local and a state level. Um, I think uh, from from the American side, uh, we're a country that's 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 made by war that's made by conflict that's shaped by conflict. And I think that one way or another, there's been a realization of that since the beginning and there's been enough foresight to set aside and to continue to set aside areas that are important to that broad story. Um, do local and state and federal agencies get it right every time? No, they don't. But given, um, I guess that at times the disconnect between what's going on in academia and in the public sphere uh, and then, of course, typical budget battles and what's the most important thing that we need to do, it, it does make for uh, sometimes stories that are more about the past than about the present or about the future. But I like to think that over time that, that's changing.
0: Right. Well, I was thinking personally in my own personal observation, if I was gonna look at a comparison it would be with what has happened, what I've seen take place in Belgium and in France in particular, with how they've begun to readdress the First World War in their interpretations. And you're right, in many cases, those are private lands that haven't been well developed, but I think we're also seeing in you know, perhaps in the American style the incorporation now of new interpretive sites at places, you know, like a Verdun or uh, a Pachandale, uh, at Dlanga market around the Ypres area, every, Ypres area, you know, an attempt to blend, again, in an American style. Here's the, mm. the historical event, but here's how it has, you know, longer implications and different permutations that, you know, people today can look back on this event. And, you know, not just, you know, mourn it or celebrate it, but also consider how it affects us living in the current day. Um, you know, and I, I think the best of the American sites that I've, I've been to as well, you know, do do an admirable job in setting the, the bar for these other nations or these other, other other locations to develop their own military history past.
1: Yeah, and, and I think that uh, bottom line... Uh, what something I've come to appreciate and perhaps I'm biased by saying this is that there's no greater way to learn about an event than the power that that place represents. Mm -hmm. When I went, I went to Verdun, um, 20 years ago and it was my first trip there and, um, I, I was completely overwhelmed by just the power of being in that place. Everything from the ossuary uh and and the vaults filled with bones to the fact that the landscape in some places hasn't recovered and there's places that were obliterated and will never be uh reestablished. And uh uh knowing uh, that that for, for me that 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 sense of power that is in that place is also something that I, I think public history has that an academic doesn't. And f- we have the, I, I suppose, the advantage and disadvantage is that not only are we speaking to experts, if uh, dad brings the whole family to a battlefield, well, dad may be interested, but, but what's going to happen with mom and the kids? What is it that, that, that can can draw them into the story And sometimes just being in the place is enough to remind them uh, walking picket's charge is one of the most Mm -hmm. profound experiences I've ever had. It was with me and some friends and we started at the Confederate lines and walked toward the high water mark and it was a a cold fall day, Mm -hmm. but it was one of the most profound experiences that I've ever had and perhaps I know too much for my own good, but the, the, the power of a place to carry a story is something that a book can can never do.
0: Right, oh, very 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 true. That I'm thinking, of, you know, walking through Fort Du at Verdun, and in a book, it's you know, it's a it's a fort that was was fought over several times during the course of the Battle of Verdun, and you know, it, it seems dramatic, but it's again, it's it's text in a book. Compare that to actually walking through the the vaults itself in the fort. Absolutely. And experiencing that is just a totally different different level of comprehension. Yes. You know, you you, you you mentioned the idea about disconnections in between the text and the reality of military history. Um, do you think there are any particular blind spots in terms of American military history that are not well represented? in the public's eye or in public interpretation right now?
1: Well, um, I'm just going to make some broad generalizations. I think that um, on one hand, when you visit a battlefield, regardless of who administers it, uh, because – and this gets back to what we just talked about – because you're in this place um, and there is a tendency to say we're in this place, so therefore – the level of knowledge you need to have to understand this place is to know who did what at what point in time and when. Mm -hmm. So it's very easy to uh, just say at this moment in time, this happened, let's go to the next spot. And I think that is valuable and it's actually necessary to understand what happened at that place. But I think what parks need to do, uh, or, or strike that, not parks, but, but in the public history sphere, is begin to go to a place but move beyond that. For example, um, instead of concentrating on, again, blue arrows and gray arrows, take a look at the people. Uh, who were there? What were they thinking? Um, where did they come from? Why were they there? What a better place, for example, uh, and, and just a hypothetical, what a better place to understand the motivations of the soldiers who were involved with Pickett's Charge to step back and look at their motivations. Where did they come from? They weren't all slaveholders. Why were they there? Mm-hmm. Um, and then by asking those questions, it gives you a chance then to step back from the blue arrows and the gray arrows and to reveal the greater meanings of that particular place. And so I think it's a challenge in particular, for smaller sites to, to step back from what they're comfortable with and embrace the wider view of that particular event or that those particular tides of history. Uh, the notion uh, like, uh, uh, unfortunately, the, Gilpin's book about death during the Civil War. Mm, that's yeah.
0: Gilpin Faust's book, This Republic of Suffering. Right?
1: Yes, what a better way to open up um, an understanding of the senior side of military history than to to introduce topics like that. I think um, sometimes uh, there's also uh, a tendency to commemorate and to, uh, depending upon your point of view, celebrate uh, a victory, but yet I think often we don't talk about the dark side. Military history ultimately is about people dying, mm-hmm. about... Um, About death and about destruction and about survival and perhaps, uh, even reminding people that these prices that we pay are something that don't need to, that shouldn't be ignored. They should be discussed and embraced. Uh, something that we can think about as a field. Uh, so bottom line, I think that the challenge of being in public history, um, is knowledge of the resource. And to have true knowledge of the resource, I think we have to step beyond. Here's a book that was written 30 years ago. Read it, and you'll understand it. And start exposing people who do interpretation to historiography, to the fact that history is not about uh, just factual information, but it's about how we understand these meanings have developed over time. And with that sophisticated view, perhaps it will it will then allow practitioners of public history, whether they're volunteers or being paid, uh, a greater understanding that, that these events, they're frozen in time, but the meanings that we derive from them have changed over time.
0: I mean, you know, clearly, you know, for people who you know, misunderstand what public history is, I mean, be they people consume it or who observe it as, you know, uh, visitors, or for people considering it as a as a future field or a future area of employment, you know, clearly there is just as much academic rigor and expectation of, you know, understanding your subject that goes into public history interpretation as it goes into a monograph. And I think a lot of people don't don't understand that or appreciate that.
1: absolutely. And when you think of what happened in the nineties with the annoying age that, mm-hmm. that um, where there was an attempt to look at historical scholarship, uh, there were many issues that, that that occurred because of the way the process was done. But in the end, they were exposing uh, an important event to academic rigor now we 've twenty years have passed if we were to approach that exhibit again, there would probably be different reactions. Mm-hmm. but I think um, uh, you you, you can 't understand. Uh, the The rich complexity of history without getting into those gray areas, I can think of any uh, most military museums you go into it and you 'll have a wall with weapons on it yeah. now as as someone who gets still gets a kick out of that <laughs> uh, i 'd be lying if i didn 't but what a better way to 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 delve into an m one grand by field stripping it and identifying where the parts came from, to, to use it as a way to explore the home front mm-hmm. or to explore uh, soldiers' feelings when they were cradling that weapon and what they thought about it or to um, go back to SLA Marshall's observations that Americans weren't weren't firing uh, at the, the the frequency toward it. I mean, they should have been. There's so many other ways to use um, what is really just a sterile object sitting on a wall to explore so many other um, aspects of our, our military past that in the end could be used to um, make other audiences interested in a topic that's generally seen as uh, one with a very narrow audience.
0: Do you feel that there are any historical sites or locations or events relative to American military history, that are being overlooked or that perhaps could be better interpreted?
1: Well, that's a good question. I think um, because uh, the budgets are fixed, and uh, at the federal level in particular and the state level, there's always a question of how many, how much resources do we need to devote to preservation. Mm-hmm. But that, that being said, time marches on and doesn't stand still. Right now, uh, we're in 2016, and we are now um, 70 plus years out from the end of the Second World War, mm-hmm. and we're getting the same distance for the beginnings of the Cold War. And I think I have a son who's 17 years old, he was born in 1999. To him, the Cold War and Vietnam is ancient past. So I think that um, for us to truly be uh, true to to public history, we we have to think about what's next. I know in the Park Service, we have two sites that were established over the past uh, several years. Minute Man Missile National Historical site. End of that site, and then it's
0: really impressive, actually, even though it's still yes. in construction.
1: And Manhattan, the Manhattan Project, which uh, will preserve resources at El Magordo, um Hanford, Washington, and Oak Ridge, Tennessee. Um, yes, it talks about a very uncomfortable pro- um, topic, but um, it's something that I think uh, opens up the doors to. Uh, again, relevancy about our past and about our future. So I guess the challenge would be what sites are out there uh, that could then talk about the later episodes of the, the, the Cold War within the continental United States. Um, of course, our actions in Vietnam were halfway across the Pacific, so it presents a challenge. But um, I, I at the moment, I'm drawing a blank on what could be um Used to represent that. So I think the challenge for public history is that um, it, it's more than the American Revolution and the American Civil War. It's also what happened in the last 30, 40, 50, 60 years. Mm-hmm. But the challenge is if those happened overseas, what do we need to do within the continent, continental United States to tell that story? And that's a tough question. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know.
0: Well, you know, I'll give you another tough question. You know, this is all about public memory and who gets to determine what narratives are privileged and which ones we, yes. we choose to neglect or ignore. You know, and a recent issue that's come up over the last 10, 20 years is the absence or the false representation of ethnic, racial, religious minorities, gender minorities in public memory. To what extent do you think this is an issue in public history? and how we interpret our military past.
1: Well, again, I'm going to make some gross generalizations, but uh, nevertheless, I think the rich tapestry of what military history represents is not well represented um, in in the public sphere. I think that that is slowly changing the addition of the Japanese internment camps, uh, Manzanar and Minidoka, come to mind within the National Park Service. Um, The... uh, refocusing of the role of African Americans in the frontier wars with um, uh, the, I believe it was the addition of Charles Young's house to the National Park Service system. There's a realization that there is uh, a a greater sense of diversity within this topic. Uh, Rosie the Riveter, World War II home front at the National Park Service level. But I think we've got a ways to go. And what I see is that this is an important topic because the the demographics of the country are changing, and they have been. And for public history to remain relevant, we have to connect with the generations who are here now and who will be changing in the future. Mm-hmm. So we do have to step back and answer that question. If, if, the, if the face of the nation is changing, how can we make this the events of of uh, the American Revolution relevant to that audience beyond just what's read in a textbook in the fourth grade. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a really, it's an appropriate question, but then the strategy becomes, how do we do it? Right. And I, I think that in the broad str- sense of the word, we can. There's um, many more stories uh, in each of our domestic conflicts from the, the revolution on the, the, that reveal... Uh, so much more than the typical face. I think it's a fair criticism, but the, the question becomes, how can we do this? And I know that it's a question I think about constantly, and I have no easy answers. How do we make these special places relevant to new audiences? And um, we do it a little bit at a time.
0: Turning to the text itself, you, know, you, you observe that proper interpretation is more than just describing the story. What is the role of the interpretive equation in this?
1: Well, the interpretive equation is something that uh, was come up back in the 90s by uh, someone who worked in the training establishment of the Park Service. And the interpretive equation, is a, it's a fake equation, but I think it really gets to the process of interpretation. And it's knowledge of the audience plus knowledge of the resource times appropriate technique equals an interpretive opportunity. Mm -hmm. And you, you can change that into a Venn diagram where knowledge of the resource, knowledge of the audience, appropriate technique, all intersect in an interpretive opportunity. And even though as a, as a profession interpretation doesn't stand still and it is evolving as we speak, I think each one of those elements are critical to connect the meanings of, of the resources that we protect to the interests of the audience. And ultimately, um, for an interpreter, yes, we do have to interject our personality and who we are into our public programs, but in the end, we always have to remind ourselves that it's the interest of the audience that we speak to, and I think that um, as a supervisor in in, in the park service, um, now, these are my own personal views, we, we have to be fair to... to what the audience brings into our places. And in many regards, perhaps we're not going to change their minds, but yet we can provide them opportunities to step back and consider okay, um perhaps I don't agree with this point of view, but this is something that I need to think about. And then perhaps we'll even give one person per day that aha moment that, that fundamentally changes uh, their understanding of the past. So as a community practitioners, regardless of the institutions that we work for, we have a huge responsibility, uh, a responsibility to perhaps uh, many tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people. And, and, and this perhaps is a little bit of hubris on my part, but far beyond the number of students in any college classroom and so for us to be a responsible community of practitioners, we have to really gain an appreciation of what are the interests of the, of the resource? What are the huge range of understanding that we have about this event? What are the appropriate techniques that I can use to, to, to bring these together into an opportunity to connect the interests of the visitor to, to the meanings of that resource? So it's a complicated skill set. It's one that can be taught and you can train to, mm-hmm. but it takes a tremendous amount of, of work uh, on, on uh, someone like me as a supervisor but also on the staff to, to, to make this process come alive to the visitor.
0: Hmm. To what extent do you think external factors or patrons help or distort the efforts of public historians. Yeah, and I guess it's fair to say, too, I mean, is this something we should care about? You know, or, and if so, what can be done to counter any of the resultant misperceptions?
1: Well, I, I think that's, that that happens on a variety of different levels. From the professional level, what I would um, uh, love to see is I've had the unique pleasure and opportunity of having one foot in, in the academic world and one foot in the world of interpretation. And at times I feel like Don Quixote tilting at one but I, I think we need to bring, uh, the academic community and the public history community together. I know we see that with the national council of public history. I know that in Amer- the organization of American historian journal from time to time, you see, um, um, uh, articles that address that. Uh, OAH uh, has a program that brings um, a Tiger team of historians into national park sites to see if, mm-hmm. their, if their interpretation is um, up to par with academic trends. Mm-hmm. But we need to see more of that at the field level. Having interpreters attend um, the Society for Military History or the Organization of American Historian or the um, American Historical Association's annual conferences I think would open people's eyes because it's as much as learning new information as it is creating networks of peers. There's the old canard that more business is done at the bar than, than in in any session at a conference. And I think those peer to peer relationships will do a tremendous amount of good in breaking down those, those barriers for, for visitors. Um, I think uh, there's the general perception that, that museums can be trusted as storehouses of information. And I think that we do a discredit to our visitors by not exposing the various shades of gray in historical um, uh, in, 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 in telling historical stories. It's not black and white. It's not good and bad. It is many shades of gray. And the one thing I appreciate about the, what the Enola Gay was doing is that it was attempting to do that, to to understand the dropping of the atomic bomb on Hiroshima and Nagasaki as much more than, than saving millions of Japanese and American lives. But there are other factors at play, love it or hate it. Um, uh, people have views about that. And so I think um, we need to uh, do a better job of exposing... The, the, the public to these many shades of gray.
0: Yeah. What about the role of corporate sponsorship? Do you think that's a dilemma, or is that a positive?
1: Well, as a public employee, um, uh, I, I have um, um, I, I, I have mixed uh, feelings about that kind of sponsorship. I think um, uh, it gets into uh, uh, it. A, a, a messy relationship where how much power does a, a sponsor have to influence the story versus the staff just saying this is the way it has to be. Mm-hmm. So, um, unfortunately in a time when, when dollars and cents are difficult to come by, I think there's a way to create these partnerships that is mutual benefit, mutually beneficial, but it takes a lot of, of oversight to do that. Yeah.
0: You know, you described how American military history evolves from several key themes that should be accounted for in some way or another in the interpretive process at public sites and collections. What particular themes are you thinking of?
1: Well, um, I fall back on some of the things that Dr. Weigley exposed us to, and that's um there's a lot of attention in the volunteer army to the notion of a citizen a citizen uh, soldier. And then given the fact that the, the National Guard um, has played a huge role in our deployments to Afghanistan, Iraq, and the Far East, I, I, I think that dichotomy over uh, the role of the citizen soldier, the tension between a regular military and uh, a militia up until in certain regards, even now, is a topic that um, we certainly can appreciate as practitioners of American military history, but we don't do a good job of explaining that to the public, except in the, the very broadest terms of, of honoring citizen-soldiers. Um, I think uh, another topic that's of interest to me is of the role that the military has in innovation. Uh, My dissertation was on um, the, the, the vicious debate within the United States army over the practice of standardizing the, the army's motor truck fleet. And given the importance of, of our aerospace industry to military procurement, I think it's too easy for uh, at times for uh, the, the, the public to fall into the, the old uh, cliché that, um, that the military is always thinking about fighting the last war mm-hmm. and not about as agents of innovation and as, um, yeah, they do drag their feet from time to time, but it has to, that, that topic in particular can be put into broader historical context. Mm-hmm. And then I think the wider interpretive theme of that we are a country made by war. And one of the things that um, I appreciated from the beginning of my exposure to uh, Dr. Weigley and Temple University is that we can't understand the richness of our own past without understanding the role conflict has played in the development of our our institutions, uh, political, cultural, and social. Uh, One of the revelations, revelations that I had was when we were discussing the Constitution as a military document. And until that time, I had never really thought about that. And I think um, it's, it's dark. It's morose. We're a country made by war. We're not the city on the hill. Uh, this is uh, American exceptionalism is shaped by violence. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And I think that it's a topic that we need to explore more fully um, with our public.
0: True. No, I agree there. You know, the body of the book is this grand narrative of American military history. I'm presuming included as a reference point for public history students and readers who don't have really an informed understanding of the American military past. As we've stated you know, a couple times here, you are a Wigley student. How well do you think his American way of war thesis holds up, and how should it evolve or be interpreted for the public to remain relevant?
1: Well, you know, um, at, at my own personal affinity for Dr. Weigley is such that um, um, I often have to step back and, and realize he's, he's, a, <laughs> he's a human and he's a human historian who, 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 uh, whose own ideas were groundbreaking, but they evolve over time. And starting with Brian Lynn's article, uh, several years ago, yeah. that started that dissecting the American way of war, I've come to realize that with um, the new textbook by um, uh, The American Ways of War uh, by Ulbricht and.
0: Uh, ways of mm-hmm. War by David Ulbricht and Matthew
1: Muehlbauer. Yes. Who I've who I I th-
0: interviewed for this podcast as a disclaimer. Yes,
1: absolutely. And um, I, I think that they hit it on the head that I think Dr. Wigley asked the right question. Um, Is there an American way of war? But I think that um, that textbook and Brian Lynn's article and then several other books and monographs that uh, begin to explore that uh, begin to dissect that and deconstruct it. And I think that there are many American ways of war, but it also begs the question, Um, and as an interpreter, one of the things that we try to do is that when you're, when you're talking to an audience that may have not have an affinity with the topic, you look for that one universal thing that ties them into what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. And with, uh, military history, it's about, um, uh, bravery, but it's also about death. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's about objectives but it's also um, about darker things. But more importantly, because it's such a universal aspect in our human existence, can there be an American way of war, or is there something that's more universal that defines that, regardless of the country or time period we're talking about? Um, I certainly haven't explored that topic fully on my own, but I, I, I think it raises the question, can we truly have an American way of war, or is there something more universal to it?
0: What do you think is the greatest challenge for the field today, in your opinion?
1: For for public history in general, yes. Well, I can see it from a variety of points of view. Um, uh, from from a practitioner point of view, I see it as uh, we're still operating in the artificial distinctions between public history and academic history and popular history. And yes, I understand that we have to sort of uh, categorize the histories we tell, but I think we're still struggling to bring these fields together so we can speak um, with one voice as opposed to three or four or five or six. Mm -hmm. Um, And I, I, I think that we've made, we've made progress in bringing those fields together, but for someone who, who wants to bring those fields together on my own, it's a challenge. Um, over the day-to-day stuff, uh, I think any uh, cultural institution, regardless of their affiliation, is going to be struggling with finding uh, relevance in audiences whose interests are changing. Uh, with the baby boom growing older, um, when the baby boom looks over their shoulders, they certainly see uh, the millennials and other demographic waves moving forward, but they're, 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 their interests are very different. Mm-hmm. So one of the challenges that I think we face in the field is how do we connect to, to this changing population and how do we connect our stories and our sites that in some cases were created generations ago uh, around certain ideas that have changed. Mm-hmm. And I think the greatest challenge that we face as as practitioners is relevancy. How do we make these stories relevant to the audiences we're speaking to today? Why should they care about Washington crossing the Delaware River, uh, or the Battle of Gettysburg, or uh, the Indian Wars of the 19th century? What is it that, that can we do to connect our modern audiences to these stories and make it relevant to their interests?
0: Do you think digital history has a part to play in this reevaluation or not?
1: Um, absolutely. Um, a- as as a person who's worked in special places, the power of place is overwhelming. But I think that with the current digital revolution going on, uh, again, to, to fall back on my own experiences, my son is 17. He's a digital native. He has known a world that's never had some sort of digital device at his beck and call. And so who are we to question that he can't become a steward of a special place or an idea through what he can find on his phone than he can visiting that place firsthand. Now, ideally, um, I'd love someone to experience uh, where I work at now, Mount Rainier or at a battlefield uh, you cannot have that, that compelling experience without marching the route of tickets charged. But who's to say that virtual reality can't create that same sort of feeling and affinity and awe and sadness that uh, something can uh, by being on the ground. Being on the ground is something I'll always, I'm, I'm always gonna defer to that. But yet, I I think we cannot completely dismiss what digital tools provide us in, in storytelling and in connecting people to our past and connecting people to the places that we protect.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, you know, we're closing in at the end of our interview here, Mark. And um, normally yeah. we have two closing questions, <laughs> which we're going to get to. But first, you know, before we get there, I, I, before we even get there, I'd like to compare notes about favorite public history sites. I mean, who knows? Maybe, maybe some of our listeners will be prompted to go visit these places as well. And you go first. What are your favorite sites here in the U.S. and abroad that are worth visiting?
1: Well, for for me, one of the most um, compelling sites overseas that I visited that that had a profound effect on my view was uh, the French battlefield of Verdun. Again, I saw it twenty years ago, and I know that they they've, they've um, changed their interpretation for the centennial of the First World War but seeing that place just had an absolute profound effect on, on, on me. And anybody who wants to understand not only the power of a place, Mm -hmm. but really, um, almost their place in, in the universe going to Verdun was, was, was absolutely profound here in the United States. I'm always, bouncing around all sorts of different places. But in the, the past few years, one museum that I visited that really, I, I think, gets it in terms of telling relevant stories is the USS Constitution Museum. Yeah. Um, it's a private nonprofit museum. It's not affiliated with the U.S. Navy or the ship. But they have created an experience that is appropriate for families, that reveals the true diversity of the crew of the Constitution during the War of 1812, they talk about uh, unseemly topics about death, about dying, about healthcare. Um, they and and more importantly, they're willing to experiment. Uh, they they're trying to talk about the origins of the 1812 War or War of 1812 with uh, family-based audiences is. is is not easy. And what impressed me is that they were constantly coming up with techniques to explore, um, the, the fact that there is no consensus on what started that. So, uh, in my, my recent trips, uh, that, that, that place made a huge impact on me.
0: Yeah. I haven't been there in years. I I should revisit it myself. I mean, if I were to offer mine, I mean, overseas, I, I have to say, um, the memorial, the American Battlefield Commission Memorial at Montfaucon in the Um, it's just amazing to climb the hill and to be in the ruins of a village that, you know, it's been destroyed, but it remains on the French uh, maps as a viable village, I think, in, in commemoration of its, of its relevancy and its historical place. But, uh, you know, you look over, you see the ground, which the um, 79th Division crossed to reach the map, the hill, and then the, the the fight to go up to the top of it. It's just awe-inspiring when you factor in also the American Cemetery for the Sargon. It's just a few miles away. Uh just, just tremendous. And then here in the States, I mean, I, I keep going back to thinking about the National Civil Rights Museum in Memphis, mm. Tennessee, um, with the site. It, it's... In the site, in the Lorraine Motel, the site where Dr. King was assassinated. And it Mm. incorporates across the street the building that his assassin fired upon him from. Uh, Just just overwhelming. Mm. Um, It's like being drawn into a vortex of history that culminates at this one point and then draws you back out
1: yeah yeah i i could probably spend the rest of the interview talking i've been to several of the concentration campsites i've been to sites across the country and it's hard to categorize one over the other but i think um uh it it uh, all i can tell the audience is that uh go out into your backyard because it's often said that the places that are most historical are the ones that you're next door to and you never visit because that's for somebody else.
0: Yeah, But
1: I, I, uh, I, I would implore people to yeah. explore their own backyard.
0: Well, you know, I'm, I live five miles from uh, Washington's Crossing, you know, <laughs> so I'm totally hip to that. Uh, let's go to the final questions. You know, first, yes. what are you looking forward to as your next project?
1: Well that's um interesting as as I said at the beginning of the interview uh as uh a person who loves history but is not in an academic environment it's very very difficult for me to pursue um my my um my um uh historical interest because I don't have the money or the time to do original research. Well, let's, so, like,
0: fact, let's factor that as well, what you might be doing for the park service too. I mean, is, is there any, certainly I uh, know there's there's nothing at the moment, but, but what I
1: have indulged in is for years, uh, the, the, the notion of creating a military history podcast based on my own view of American military history. And one that is, uh, reflective of my graduate education finally came to fruition in February. So as a result, really, of this book, I created my own podcast. It's very modest. It's called America at War. It's available on iTunes and Google Play. And um, the episodes tend to be short. And I started at the beginning at Jamestown rather than 1776. Mm-hmm. And I'm now um, on... Um, I think it's episode fifteen, talking about the uh, end game for uh, the Seven Years War or the French and Indian War, and I'm um, I'm still trying to find my voice, if you will, and and find a way to tell the narrative that uh, is interesting, but it allows me to uh, I, I don't have to go to the National Archives. I have a huge library at home, and I can create vignettes. Uh, along our timeline that I think are true to my own beliefs and are interesting for the public. So again, it's a podcast called America at war and um, it, it's something that I, I can't create episodes every week because of my own schedule, but uh, it, it's a way to delve into a, stories that I've always appreciated, but in a medium that doesn't require me to gallivant all across the United States doing original research
0: That's fantastic. I urge everybody to listen to the podcast i mean there's never There's never such a thing as too many good podcasts for I think for our listeners to check out so
1: absolutely, absolutely.
0: well, the second question is was is there anything you're reading now that our listeners may want to check out for themselves?
1: Well, it's funny you say that. Um, A couple weeks ago, I was at the uh, American Association of State and Local History uh, Conference in Detroit, and uh, I went there on my own dime. Um, In a sense, the book project began with AASLH. I took a training course, and the executive who was in charge of the training pulled me and several people aside and asked, if we wanted to contribute to this book series called interpret this. And so I owe it to that person for giving me the courage to put in a proposal that resulted in this book. So regardless, AASLH is um, a great organization, but I'd never been to Detroit before. And the, the impact of Henry Ford on that town is all around you. So I, I just finished it this morning. As a matter of fact, I don't have it in front of me, But it's um, a biography of Henry Ford Mm -hmm. that was published in the 90s. And it provided a fascinating portrait of of the man, his company, and its effect on on the motor industry. Uh, In terms of military history, uh, I have a pile of books next to my desk. And uh, I was recently reading... um, it's the uh, multiple biographies of the British general officers who led the uh, effort in the revolution. Oh, right,
0: um, right. Um, uh, the men who lost America.
1: Yes, yes, yes. Right. Uh, because the, the revolution is the next topic on the podcast list, I've been trying to um, delve into more recent scholarship and have found it uh, uh, a fascinating capsule biographies of... of uh, the opposite, the the other in our in our uh, in the story of the American Revolution.
0: Mm-hmm. That is a great book. I have to, I have to confess, I've read it myself. Well, Mark, it's been great talking to you. You know, thanks for taking the time to speak with me today.
1: Absolutely, um, I've I've enjoyed this this opportunity.
0: That's great. And to all of our listeners, on behalf of New Books in Military History, this is Bob Wintermute thanking you for listening.